Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. If you don't have it, get it. 24-6 entertainment shows, information that you need for the Jewish world. And we are less than eight weeks from Election Day, uh, coming at us quickly. Uh, it's going to be quite uh, momentous. I think uh, 2020 will be a year like no other. So much at stake uh, throughout the up and down the electorate. And uh, just want to, I guess, well, you know, what we have, uh, the presidential election. I mean, that's clear. The Senate is at stake. I mean, truly up for grabs right now. Truly, truly up for grabs. Uh, we have the House, and not um, necessarily looked at right now as being uh, in play, but one never knows, and uh, a lot can change because Democrats obviously control the House, and you got to flip about 40 seats in order to make it happen. Some of those races are going to be right here in New York, uh, not to be too New York-centric. We can profile New Jersey and some other states. Uh, at a later week, but today I want to look at a couple House races uh, here in New York that could and may, in fact, uh, decide the future of the control of the House and the and the country, for that matter. So there is so much going on, and uh, unfortunately, coronavirus seems to have rebounded, at least locally, uh, at least throughout the Jewish communities and the. Uh, in particular, the Orthodox communities of uh, Brooklyn, uh, the five towns um, elsewhere, Muncie, we seem to have uh, seen a resurgence, a lot of it tied to uh, large chasanas, large weddings. And uh, I guess this general feeling that uh, perhaps there's herd immunity, perhaps uh, things were, we had kind of moved past it. And now uh, that's not the case. Um, the village of Lawrence, where I am, uh, Deputy mayor, as well as a resident, has the highest rate of new cases, new corona po- coronavirus positives in Nassau County uh, right now. More than three cases, 3.3 cases per day of new coronavirus cases. Um, small village, um, and it's alarming. And yes, there are people in the hospital. Yes, there are people getting sick. People are getting very sick. This is not limited to camp. This is not limited to kids. This is not limited. This is happening to adults. This is happening to older people. A lot of people think it's past. Uh, you see it when you go places with the lack of masking um, and the like. And uh, you know, it's it's tragic. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, we haven't heard about deaths uh, going on this th- here locally, but uh, around the country, there's still uh, there's, it's happening. And uh, you know, we got to take a moment to think about it and take a moment to uh, digest the. Got to take a moment to digest the enormity or the gravity of the impact, not just the economically and the upending of our lives, but the actual human toll and the human cost of the people who have died from 
Corona um, and the impact that that's had throughout the country. And um, so, of course, the first headline today is the tapes of the Bob Woodward book that is coming out next week called Rage. The first one about the Trump White House was Fear. And there's always a Bob Woodward book that comes out um, about pretty much every president that he's done. And the man has an uncanny knack for getting people to speak on the record, off the record. Um, It's quite impressive, a great writer, uh, even if there are things in the book sometimes that uh, get to be recounted, revised. But the general idea is that with Woodward is that you cooperate with him in order to make sure that you get your side of the story in there because he's going to write a book anyway. He's going to find sources. Uh, he's always managed to find sources in the White House. He did it with Obama. He did it with Bush. He did it with Clinton and it, on and on. But the an enormous amount of audio that President Trump provided him and the candor with which President Trump had uh, in some of these money quotes and some of these bombshell quotes uh, that he's given, particularly with regard to coronavirus. And in particular, let's just you know, have it out there in case you haven't heard about it. Uh, the president essentially admits that he downplayed the impact of the coronavirus initially in order not to panic people. He didn't want uh, the public to panic over coronavirus. Now, it's a judgment call, I guess. Um, but the idea that the American people can't handle the information and shouldn't be able to handle the deadliness. Of, you know, and, and he was intentionally downplaying its deadliness. He knew how deadly it was. He knew it was more deadly than the flu, but yet they were comparing it to the flu over and over. That's essentially what he implies from the tapes, and that's what the tapes seem to show. And, of course, this is not a person reading. This is President Trump in his own words. Now, I understand there's a judgment to be made about that, but— It's kind of like if there was a hurricane coming towards the U.S. and the government and the scientists and the NOAA and the National Hurricane Administration decided all together we're just not going to tell anybody or we're going to say it's really a Category 1 or it's a tropical storm when in fact it's it's Category 5. I mean, that would just be incredibly bad judgment to do. In fact, I would say it's... This just it's inexcusable. Now, there the difference is we we have an understanding of the impact of a category five hurricane. Here we didn't really understand the impact of the coronavirus because it's never really happened before a virus along these lines that's as deadly as this one and as contagious as this one, and its ability to spread asymptomatically and all the other features that corona has challenged the scientific community with. Uh, But having said that, uh, you don't want to be there on record as to say I intentionally downplayed this. I didn't tell the American people the truth. This is not just a political kind of a spin idea. This is essentially saying I didn't want to to tell people because they couldn't handle the information. Okay. That would be the best case scenario. Best. The worst case scenario is I didn't want to tell people because it might damage me. 
Now, the other thing with regard to the, you know, my always thing is the political malpractice of this Bob Woodward thing is that the president seemed to have just been talking to Bob Woodward extensively and over and over without telling his staff what was going on. He ordered his staff to cooperate and people signed off on this and everybody was, according to you know multiple reporting, and I'm sure there's going to be a ton of it, especially when the book itself comes out, is to say that who knows what's in there. It's kind of like the Don McGahn testimony to the Mueller report, right? Uh, that Don McGahn sat for hours and hours and hours for testimony with Mueller. And no one really knew what he said. At the same time, the president was telling his lawyers, his own lawyers, meaning McGahn is the White House counsel, which is not his own lawyer. He was telling his own lawyers there's nothing to see here. But at the same time, McGahn was telling them that there was some kind of cover-up going on. And... One side doesn't know what the other side is doing. So then you have the unfortunate uh, sequence of Kaylee McEnany going before the press yesterday and denying facts that the president, I mean, I'm going to call them facts because the president's own words, denying things that the president said, in fact, that he actually said. And she goes out before the press and says, no, that didn't happen. That's not what this is. I just don't understand the idea of not leveling with the American people. Um, the American people are we're we're resilient. We can handle it. I think it's better to understand the enormity and the gravity of the challenge that we're facing, as opposed to hiding it and pretending that it's not a big deal. I think more people, if they understood the risks involved in not wearing a mask, would go ahead and wear a mask. Shouldn't have to, shouldn't be a political statement, shouldn't be a fashion statement, shouldn't be any of those things. You should just wear a mask. If you go inside, you're going to be close to somebody, wear a mask. Don't approach people without a mask. The other problem here for the president, as is to say, is that we're less than eight weeks from the election. And he needs to be on offense because even despite the fact that the polling is close in a lot of battleground states and this is thing is still winnable for the president, for Republicans. And he needs to make up ground. If you want to say, okay, the polling is wrong and we're going to, and the internals are showing Republicans up in all these places. Okay, fine. But if you're not in politics, the one commodity that you can't, the most precious commodity is time. It's not necessarily money. And we've heard that the president, actually, Republicans have money troubles right now, shockingly enough. But we need, if you're the president's campaign, you need to be on offense. You need to be making up ground. You need to be making up in the states that matter where you're a little bit behind you in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in North Carolina, Florida is neck and neck, Pennsylvania behind, Arizona behind. So you have, and even if these were within the margin area and say you're a little bit ahead, every day in a campaign that you're not playing offense, that you're not setting the agenda is a lost day. Now, the thing is, in 2016, 
Trump was setting the agenda every day because he dominated the news cycle about everything. But a lot of the stuff, and it was exciting and it was everything for the voters. And everybody wanted to hear what would Trump say, what would Trump do. And we want to know because we want, because we're so enthralled um, and entertained. I think that's really a piece of it. And I've said this before, I'll continue to say it. Donald Trump has the ability to make news or to dominate the news and set the media agenda in a way that nobody that nobody has and nobody can emulate, really. There's just nobody with that ability. But if you're not gaining ground in this case, then and you're always going to explain all these allegations that are coming out, then you've got essentially lost that time. You've lost that day. And will this single-issue agenda of law and order and Joe Biden loves the rioters and Joe Biden wants to defund the police and Joe Biden is senile and Joe Biden is sleepy Joe, which they're still doing. Will that be effective enough to carry the president to victory and carry the Republicans to victory in the Senate on November 3rd? Unclear. Unclear. But I do think in politics, if you have to be explaining, you're losing. And that's kind of what's going on as well. You also had, I mean, it's an unparalleled amount of news and books that are going to be coming out about the president. But the other allegation, the big allegation this week is that the president called U.S. soldiers suckers as and losers and didn't want to go visit them. Now, the interesting thing about the lead story there in Jeffrey Goldberg's reporting in The Atlantic is that, yeah, the president is prone to say this, and then, of course, he denied he ever called John McCain a loser when he had, and okay, fine. And he explained away his relationship with McCain and the fact, the fact that I think that's you know disappointing and a disappointing attitude towards a true American hero. We'll leave that aside. But what I do think is particularly noteworthy is that the people who would seem to have been in the room for the decision not to for the president not to go to the grave side service for the marines in France all deny that the president said that at that time not necessarily that it was out of character because we know that he does say things and tends to say things and sometimes he means them sometimes joking sometimes it's just an attitude and yes he has a cavalier attitude towards language but that much make makes him popular to a certain segment out there but this lead story that's the sensational story about the fact that him not go on to go, not because of the weather, not because of the rain, but because he felt that people who died fighting wars were suckers, which is a crazy allegation. But the people who would have been in the room, like a John Bolton and his uh, Zach Fuentes, who is his chief of staff, and that, and the like, all deny that that actually happened. Now, could it happen at a different time? Could it be conflating different events? Could people have, you know, made a connection between the two? Very possible, but that doesn't mean that things were reported entirely accurately. So.
I will say that this is a this is going to be a very interesting time uh, for the president, another uh, and the administration, and whether they have every day you have coronavirus issues. Will there be another stimulus package? They don't seem to be able to get that. Will the government, in fact, shut down? Which I think would be disastrous for Washington in general and everybody who's there. But I think the president will probably have to own that because he is, of course, in charge. And that's unlikely to happen. But the government needs to be funded yet again. There's also a DHS whistleblower lawsuit going on, Department of Homeland Security, over whether they should be providing intelligence reports on Russian meddling in the election. And this comes not from a low-level political, non-political career officer. This is from a high-level appointee in the administration. This is from an undersecretary. It's very rare that you have a whistleblower complaint from an undersecretary. And then the question is, of course, will any of this matter? Um, The attitudes are so hardened in the electorate right now, and people... Just, you know, have they kind of made up their minds already? So that's where we stand. Let's just look at some uh, congressional races as we wrap up uh, for going on in New York. You have the first district, Lee Zeldin versus Nancy Goroff. Uh, Lee Zeldin won comfortably uh, in 2016, uh, won a little more narrowly, but still a quite comfortable margin in 2018. Has definitely... uh, become a significant Trump supporter, um, tied himself to the president as a someone who has um, even spoke at the Republican National Convention. Nancy Goroff, a, a scientist professor at Stony Brook University, a self-funder, a, a husband is a hedge fund manager, and uh, very interesting race. I think one feature there is New York City residents who have now, former, now who moved to the Hamptons, who are now changing their, changed their voter registration, uh, moved to the East End, the North Fork, and the South Fork, and are going to vote out there, who are generally going to be more, much more liberal than the general electorate, and living out there full-time out east on Long Island, the Eastern District, uh, far, the far, most, easternmost district of New York. Uh, number two, another competitive race for the open... Uh, seat vacated by Peter King, Andrew Garbarino, and Jackie Gordon. Uh, Jackie Gordon, African-American woman, Army veteran, officer. Uh, Andrew Garbarino, an assemblyman, uh, Republican assemblyman from Sayville, uh, won a uh, primary, uh, Republican primary, uh, which you don't see to- that often in Long Island, uh, kind of handily. And... Uh, we will see. That could be, and that is going to be one of the most closely watched races in uh, New York State. Another competitive race: Staten Island to Brooklyn. Nicole Maliotakis uh, challenging Max Rose. Max Rose with a 15-second ad came out yesterday, saying Bill De Blasio is the worst mayor in New York City history. Now, what was remarkable about it? Number one, a Democrat. Number two, somehow is. That's the congressional issue that he's going for. Um, certainly certainly going to get attention. Uh, but clearly, Bill de Blasio is, as I've said, possibly the worst mayor in New York City history and has proven it just throughout the coronavirus as just being totally ineffective. 
But for so many reasons, and just that too numerous to count, uh, not just ineffective, but in every way, you know, it's kind of this idea, and I've said that just when you think a politician, a politicians could get no worse and could do some of the dumbest things, Bill de Blasio was there to do something even dumber. And to, um, like when he said, you know, that restaurants can all close because only rich people eat there. Uh, just to, well, anyway, Max Rose went there. Nicole Naotakis, of course, was the person who challenged Bill de Blasio last, uh, in last year for the, uh, for the mayoral race. So, it's um sorry 2017 for the mayoral race so uh it's it's quite interesting that that is a tack that a democrat wanted to take but clearly one in staten island brooklyn that will resonate uh with uh many voters and that's going to be an interesting race um then you have in the 18th district shaw farley challenging sean patrick maloney uh, in the 19th district, uh, Kyle Vanderwater against Antonio Delgado, and that's going to be an interesting one. That's a district that Trump won, uh, that swung back and forth uh, several times. And uh, up in the North Country, uh, Elise Stefanik also spoke at the Republican National Convention against Tedra Cobb. That's a rematch. And uh, in uh, one of the most closely watched, uh, New York 22, Claudia Tenney against Anthony Brindisi, also a rematch. Uh, Claudia Tenney held the seat. Anthony Brindisi took it in 2018. This is a district Trump won. It's a very heavily Republican district. Uh, Claudia Tenney um, is you know, looked at as a prime pickup. And we'll have to see the number in the 24th, uh, John Katko versus Dana Balter, also a rematch. Uh, John Kacko has been pretty resilient. That's one of the districts that Clinton actually won, that a Republican won in 2000, um, in 2016, and he won again in 2018. And uh, then, you know, those races uh, further out in western New York, uh, considered to be less competitive, Tom Reed, um, uh, Chris Jacobs won, uh, although that margin with the paper tends to be a lot smaller, which was f- uh, only five points, but we'll see. Uh, there you have Joe Morelli and uh, Brian Higgins there out in Western New York. But, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of these races that are going to be particularly close. So we're going to be watching all those as we progress towards Election Day. And we'll, of course, be watching uh, races around the country, particularly the U.S. Senate. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. And the question is, you know, will any of this matter? Will this Bob Woodward book matter? Will all these books are coming out. Will the Michael Cohen book matter? I mean, I don't think anybody really wants to hear that much from Michael Cohen these days. I certainly don't. Um, but will anything, you know, cause the uh, the hardened views of uh, the electorate to change substantially? This one thing I think you need to keep in mind is that right now the president is behind. He needs to make up the time. He needs to stop having these, uh, I think, these uh, self-inflicted negative news cycles. Get back on track. Get things back in your corner. And I would say to the team, stop fumbling the ball because that has has been going on a little bit uh, out there. New campaign manager certainly uh, seems to be doing better. But we will see as we move forward. That's it for this week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nachum Siegel Network.